please turn this morning to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 38. Jeremiah 38, beginning in verse 1. Then Shephatiah, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, and Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken unto all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, He that remaineth in this city shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. But he that goeth forth to the Chaldeans shall live, for he hath he shall have his life for a prey, and shall live. Thus saith the Lord, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore the princes said unto the king, We beseech thee, let this man be put to death. For thus he weakeneth the hands of the men of war that remain in this city, and the hands of all the people, in speaking such words unto them. For this man seeketh not the welfare of this people, but the hurt. Then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he is in your hand, for the king is not he that can do anything against you. Then took they Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the son of Hamalek, that was in the court of the prison, and they let down Jeremiah with cords. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. Now when Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the king's eunuchs, which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon, the king then sitting in the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went forth out of the king's house and spake to the king, saying, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take from hence thirty men with thee, and take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he die. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury and took thence old cast clouts and old rotten rags and let them down by cords into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said unto Jeremiah, Put now these old clouts and rotten rags under thine armholes under the cords. And Jeremiah did so. So they drew up Jeremiah with cords and took him out of the dungeon and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. And then skip to verse 27 and 28. Then came all the princes unto Jeremiah and asked him, and he told them according to all these words that the king had commanded. So they left off speaking with him, for the matter was not perceived. So Jeremiah abode in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken, and he was there when Jerusalem was taken. Let's pray. Our Father, it is with fear and trembling that we come into your presence and we hear your word. We know that if it was up to us, we would be totally apart from you. But we thank you that you have heard our prayer, you've heard our cry, and you are gathered with us now. And I pray that the words that I speak would be glorifying and honoring to you and that they would be heard by your people and that the thoughts of your people would be on what you are saying to them. Pray that your spirit would speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Jeremiah is not a commonly read or commonly preached on book except for about three or four chapters. The most familiar passage from Jeremiah is chapters 31 through 33. Uh, these being encouraging 
prophecies of the New Covenant. The majority of this book, though, is sad. Jeremiah is not called the weeping prophet for nothing. We can see 50-something chapters in this book. Most of it is Jeremiah prophesying against Judah, telling them the sins that they have committed, and what they should do in response, because Judah was at this time besieged by Babylon, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. There is an argument going on about how they should respond, though, to this siege that Babylon had started. Most wanted to fight. We can read in the book of Jeremiah and see that there were many prophecies that had been given that said, look, God has saved you many times before. Don't ignore what He has done. He will do it again here and now. Just fight it out. We remember stories like this. People who would come against Israel or against Judah and it would look like, humanly speaking, all was lost, but the Lord then would cause usually the enemy to ambush itself. And Judah or Israel or both of them, when they were a united kingdom, they would be victorious. But Jeremiah has the privilege, if you want to call it that, of saying, not going to happen this time. So as you can imagine, he had an unpopular message. His message was that the, fa- that the fathers had sinned. He said, and because your fathers had sinned, God had said, you are going to be removed from this land and you're going to be taken to Babylon. And nobody wanted to hear that. They wanted to hear good things, positive things. So, They ignored what Jeremiah said. They laughed at what Jeremiah said. And then they persecuted Jeremiah for what he said. This book ends, though, with Jeremiah's prophecy coming true. And Judah was taken captive and exiled into Babylon. In the passage we read this morning, Again, we hear Jeremiah telling Judah that obedience to God meant going into exile, and if they didn't, the consequences would be worse for them. In response, the princes, or we would say the aristocrats of Judah, put Jeremiah in a dungeon to starve to death. They were not able any longer to stop their ears to what he was saying, and they said that it's causing some of the men to lose heart. So, we need to remove him from the earshot of the people. A somewhat similar story if you read in Isaiah, chapters 36 and 37, where you have Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, he was, his servant was speaking to Judah and was saying, look, your God's not going to save you. Now, I'm not, now Jeremiah had a different message and he, his was from God and this wicked man was from Assyria, but to those who are loyal patriots of Judah, it sounded the same. Both messages, whether it's from Jeremiah or Sennacherib's messenger, were disheartening. 
But the difference is one was from Satan and one was from God. So how do you know the difference? Well, it takes wisdom. Wisdom that only God can give. Jeremiah, again, is not a prophet that most of us read for encouragement. Usually we go to Isaiah for that. Or the Psalms or Proverbs. Jeremiah is the type of book you give someone that's a little bit too high on life. You know, if, if, if they think that, it, that it, everything's too good, if, if they get on your nerves and they're kind of annoying because they're so perky, say, look, just go read Jeremiah and Lamentations and Amos and come back and we'll talk about it. I mean, that's what you do. But you don't give this, you don't read this because it's necessarily uplifting. But don't be misled by the fact that there are portions of Scripture that don't necessarily encourage us on a first glance. Jeremiah was a man. And as a man, he faced struggles and temptations. Judah, as a nation, faced struggles and temptations. They were called to obey, and they didn't obey. Everyone in here has faced these type... Now, I don't mean that you've been literally forced to go into exile or anything like that, but you've faced situations where you're tempted to discouragement and towards melancholy and towards just totally giving up whatever it is that you're facing. Imagine the average Judean hearing Jeremiah's message. The message is you just need to go ahead and quit. You need to go ahead and give up and you need to go into exile in Babylon. Not a very patriotic message. I mean, these are proud people. They loved one another. They loved the nation. And you have this nitwit who's saying that God's not going to deliver us. Imagine what the average Judean would be hearing. What would he be thinking? Surely, Almighty God will deliver us again. He's done it so many times. I mean, we have the temple. God's presence came down into the temple. His glory was in the temple when our father Solomon was king. David is our father. The prophecy is that there will be another David come up. And if the temple is destroyed, that can't happen. So this has to be God's will. Jeremiah said, don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. There are times when things come up that do not make sense. Even for us, things don't go according to what we understand as biblical sense. How discouraged would the man be who knew that God was going to save them when he saw Babylon's armies coming in and they were not stopped. But instead, they took the king. They disgraced him in front of his own people. They ransacked the temple. They took everything of value. They burned down homes. They destroyed land. What would that person's temptation be? It would be strong. 
to say, this, this doesn't work. He, God can't be really true if all these things are happening. Well, then, not only consider Judah, consider Jeremiah himself. He was called by God from birth to prophesy to Judah. That was his calling. He was born to speak the Word of God to God's people in Judah. And God warned him not to fear what men would say. He said, don't fear their faces. Don't worry about what they say or how they look or how they act or how they respond. You speak what I've said for you to speak. Now, if I were Jeremiah, I would think, well, if the Lord has prepared me for this and He has said for me to speak, then obviously there's going to be some serious revival. Isaiah, when he was a prophet, he prophesied under King Hezekiah and there was a there was revival in Judah. When Elijah prophesied, there was a small reformation in Israel. That's the type of prophet I want to be. The prophet of God's restoration. And what does he get instead? Every time he speaks, they make fun of him. They laugh at him. They ignore what he says. They put him in a dungeon. And then he's left in the dungeon for protective custody because if he would have went out of the dungeon, he would have been killed. They hated what he had to say. Do you think as Je- that Jeremiah would be prone to the temptation of I'm a failure. This has accomplished nothing. I have prophesied to Judah for all this time and not a thing has changed. They continued in disobedience. They were exiled. Most of them would not go peacefully. They went by force. And even the remnant that was left in Jeremiah 42, there's a number of the poor who were left. And Jeremiah even prophesied to them. He said, look, stay here. The Babylonians have left you here. Stay here and obey God. And they said, we will follow whatever words you say. And Jeremiah said, stay here. Don't go to Egypt. And what did they do? They went to Egypt and they were destroyed. It's almost like whoever Jeremiah prophesied to, it was it was bad for them because they're, they're going to go into further sin. What type of prophet is that? Not the prophet I want to be. Probably not the prophet you want to be either. Think about every person, that, I mean, if every person you witnessed to a few days later died, you'd be prone to stop witnessing. At least tempted to. Well, that's kind of the case with Jeremiah. People didn't want to hear what he had to say. God's people love good words. We want to hear encouraging things and good things and uplifting things. We want to feel the smile of our Heavenly Father. That should be our desire. But, as William Cooper said, at times the smile of God is hidden behind a frowning providence. 
Remember God moves in a mysterious way? Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Well, the book of Jeremiah is about God's frowning providence. No one likes, no one just enjoys God's frowning providence. David didn't. Jeremiah didn't. Joseph didn't. And even our Lord Himself in the Garden of Gethsemane asked that the cup would pass from Him. It's painful at times. But our task is to learn from and as we go through this frowning providence of God. So this morning, I want us to take several lessons from Jeremiah and from Judah from this book. The first thing I want us to see and the first thing that we can learn through God's providence is that He is orchestrating all the events. God is orchestrating all of the events. In Jeremiah 18, verse 1, it said, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, and it seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are ye in mine house, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit it. I would benefit them. The word given to Jeremiah from God is that I am a potter. And nations are as clay in my hand. I form them, I mold them, and I fashion them. Verse 7, At what instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. The message that Jeremiah is given is God is working all these things Himself. When we are in the midst of a trial, our temptation is to think that the battle is against flesh and blood. When you are faced in a discouraging time, with a discouraging time, when you are bound, we want to think that the problem is located within a person or a group. Humans. It is humans that are causing this. And if I can fix whatever it is, or whoever it is, then the problem will be gone. And God said, no. 
Now, don't take this the wrong way. Don't take it too far. This is not excusing sin at any time. This is not saying that God desires that wicked things take place. Alright? He doesn't. But as I've said many times in this pulpit, and I will say again, if God doesn't want something to happen, sin or otherwise, He can stop it. Okay? If He doesn't want it to happen, He can stop it. We see this in Scripture, and God does not stop operating the way that He does in His Word, and now He's on a different plan today. He is working all things. All things are by the hand of God. Jeremiah could have become bitter at the situation he was placed in. Why did he have to preach to these people? The Judeans could have become bitter over the fact that God did not deliver them as He had delivered them many times in the past. Why are we the ones that have to go into exile? Why couldn't He wait another generation? I mean, that's what Hezekiah said. Hezekiah said, thankfully, this will not be in my generation. It will be in the future. We can smile because we know our hearts are inclined to the same thing. Instead of becoming bitter, though, at this person or at that group, or becoming frustrated or despondent, we must remember that God is the first cause of everything. And when I say first cause, He is the one who ultimately, He controls all that happens. And again, if He does not want it to happen, it will not. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 23, another statement of this. How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken? How has Babylon become a desolation among nations? He calls Babylon the hammer of the earth. Well, a hammer doesn't do anything without someone picking it up. It must be in someone's hands, and in this case, it is in the hands of Almighty God. If you ever accidentally, when you're holding a nail, missed the nail and popped your thumb, you can't get mad at the hammer. Because if you're going to be mad at someone, you'd be mad at the person swinging the hammer. Well, for us, we want to blame the hammer when situations come up in our lives. We want, to, we want to place the blame on humanity in some way. And yes, sin is sin, and sin should, be, should not be excused. But ultimately, we want to get mad at the hammer because we really, it makes us a little bit nervous about being open to the fact that we're really angry at the one who holds the hammer. And we don't want to say that. We don't want to talk about that because that's we know that that's not right. So we'd much rather, you know, 
get mad at the hammer. Well, don't. Frustration and anger towards God exists. And not just in the world. It exists in the church. And instead of pretending like it doesn't, we must confess our sin to Him in this area. Yes, it is natural. Yes, it is normal. So we confess it to Him. Confess that we are weak and we can't understand and we are battling and ask Him to take it. And I would also say, ask forgiveness for the fact that we are angry or we are hurt at the way He bears His hammer. Because in His sovereignty, He is causing these things to work together for good to those that love Him. Romans 8.28 Because He is good and because He is sovereign, we trust Him. Just as Jeremiah trusted Him. Number two, the second thing we learn through the frowning providence of God is to not waste our trial. Not to waste our trial. Here we must begin with one principle, and that is that God sends His chastening for His glory. God loves you. He does. And He loves His glory. And those two are not mutually exclusive. As economists say, it is not a zero-sum game. It's not all of. It's not either He loves you or He loves His glory. He created you for His glory. But what do we do? Like Judah, we sin, and then in our sin He brings chastening. And sometimes the sin that we commit is not even. It's not a purposeful sin. It's not a willful sin. It's a sin of ignorance. But ignorant sin is still sin. And we are still held accountable for sin. Even if we are ignorant of it. So it is necessary for us to receive chastening. And the chastening of the Lord comes so that we might grow. When He chastens His children... His children are formed more in His likeness. And when we are formed more in God's likeness, we bring more glory to Him. That's why this chastening will never stop. I don't mean that it will be just non-stop every single moment of every day for the rest of your life. But there are times when He sends His discipline, His chastening, His rod to you so that you will be more formed and fashioned like Him. So, how do we waste a trial? When I say don't waste your trial, we waste it by focusing on ourselves and how we can escape instead of submitting yourself to God and seeking to learn what He would teach you in it. We all know when we're in pain 
usually our first and foremost desire is to get the pain over with. Whatever it takes. Get the pain over with. And we will go to great extents, for some people, sinful extents even, in order to make the pain stop. Because that's human nature. We want to end it. Surely Jeremiah wanted the trial of his prophesying to the people to be over with. Yet the Lord didn't allow him for quite a while. He did not allow him to stop. Jeremiah was told to continue faithfully. And his example is one of the greatest examples of perseverance we find in Scripture. And I would say it's, it's up there even with Job. Because the things that happened to Job, no, no one can doubt, those things were totally out of his control. He had nothing to do with it. There's no way that Job could escape, humanly speaking. Jeremiah could have. Jeremiah could have stopped. He could have been disobedient. He could have stopped prophesying. And I'm sure that many of the people of Judah who when he was being scorned, when he was being persecuted, they said, look, Jeremiah, you've just done this to yourself. All you have to do is stop and nobody will give you any problem again. Join Hananiah, this other prophet that said, God will surely deliver you out of the hand of the Babylonians. Go to that side. But he didn't. Jeremiah continued faithfully until the Lord removed him. The people of Judah, they could have focused on how discouraging their situation was in being forced to go to Babylon. And they would have missed the fact, if all they focused on was just how can we get out of here, the fact that they had sinned and they needed repentance. You are called to glorify God in your trials. Now, the temptation exists many times to just hunker down, turn inward, grit your teeth, and hope to endure because after a little while, this will be over and I won't have to worry about it anymore. But we're not Stoics. We're not called to Stoicism. By Stoic, I mean we're not those who just try to display no emotion. Or again, you could become transfixed on people or events that you think would fix the problem instead of learning on how God is trying to work in you. Your Heavenly Father and my Heavenly Father does not work for our ease. That is not His main goal. The first question and answer of the Westminster Catechism does not say, the chief end of man is to enjoy God forever. Implying it's something on our own terms. It said it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Again, two things that are not exclusive, but two things that go together. He works to accomplish His holiness in you so that you in turn may glorify Him. Because again, you are created for glory. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the trial of our faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, 
will be found eventually to the glory of God. It will be found to glorify God, even though we're the ones being tried. So when He sends the trial your way, respond by seeking what He is trying to teach you. That's not mysticism. That's obedience and submission. Number three, the third thing we can learn from Jeremiah and Judah is that obedience is more important than reputation. Obedience to God is more important than reputation. Jeremiah chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord to me, Make thee bonds and yokes, and put them upon thy neck, and send them to the king of Edom, and the king of Moab, and to the king of the Ammonites, and to the king of Tyrus, and the king of Zidon, by the hand of the messengers which came to Jerusalem unto Zedekiah, king of Judah, and command them to say unto their masters, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus shall ye say unto your masters, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. Now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and to the beast of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all his all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the very time of his of his land come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. And it shall come to pass that the nation and kingdom which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that he will that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, the nation that nation will I punish, saith the Lord, with a sword and with a famine and with a pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. Therefore hearken not to your prophets, nor your diviners, nor your dreamers, nor your enchanters, nor to your sorcerers which speak unto you, saying, Ye shall not serve the king of Babylon. For they prophesy a lie unto you to remove you far from your land, that I should drive you out, and that ye should perish. Now, Jeremiah was given, was told to give the nations around him an object lesson. So he sent them a gift. A yoke from God's prophet. He sent out messengers and they took a yoke. A yoke to the lands of Zidon, Moab, the Ammonites, and Edom. Now, do you think that this might cause a little bit of a downcast look on Jeremiah's reputation? I would say yes. Because the message associated is not one, here you go, happy birthday from Jeremiah. The message was, you need to go ahead and put your neck under this yoke of the king of Babylon. See, it wasn't just to Judah, it was to surrounding lands as well. And we can read a lot of other passages in Jeremiah about things that he was told to do that didn't win friends and influence people. The the message could have been given to Jeremiah, look, if you want to gain a following, you need to do it the right way. You need to take some leadership classes. Learn how how to grow in your influence. But, But Jeremiah didn't do that. 
He spoke words that were hard. And some people would say words that were impossible. And the people responded in a rebellious manner. Now Jesus is an even greater example of this. Jesus had a following. There were a lot of people that followed Him, but He would always do things that would cause His following to decrease. He would say things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you you have no life. You have a lot of people looking at each other at that point and looking at each other and saying, What? What is this? What is he talking about? He told one group, he said, You're of your father, the devil. The uh, chaff was quickly being sifted with statements like that. Jesus did not hold back because of fear of his reputation. In fact, we're told in Philippians 2 that he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. Now, we think that only in terms of the incarnation, but there's more than the incarnation to it. When he was on earth, he didn't seek to build his reputation among men. He sought his continuous righteous standing before God and maintained it throughout his life. Have you sacrificed your reputation? to God's glory. Say, so how do I do that? Well, you do that by humbling yourself before Him, just like Jesus did, and pursuing obedience to the one true and living God. You do it by pursuing the glory of God, not the menial glory of men. Regardless of what happens, you should obey God, no matter how it makes you look to other people. Because they're going to stand before God too. You're not going to stand before them. Number four, there are times when we should be willing to go into exile. There are times when we should be willing to go into exile. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof ye shall have peace. This was a hard thing for Judah. They had been delivered many times. And now the message is, you need to seek the peace of the place you should go. What's their response? Well, I'm sure I would much rather seek the peace where I am. It seemed like a foreign idea to go into this foreign land and that God would ordain that. This hadn't happened before. No place in the history of the people of God do we see Judah itself the remnant being told by God, go into this other land. Leave the land that I've given you. Go into another land. 
and submit. Judah should have obeyed Jeremiah's words, but instead they continued where it was where there was greater comfort. And there was punishment for being disobedient. The temple was ransacked, the king was put to open shame, and the people were removed and their homes destroyed. Sometimes God calls us to go to places where we normally wouldn't. Now, I'm not saying use this as an opportunity for sin. Brother Matt said I should go to places that I normally don't, so I'm going to try out this this new bar over here that's got some really rough-looking folks there. That's just, I'm going to try. No, I don't mean that at all, okay? But there are times that we are called to do things that don't make sense to us because we've not had to do them before. And in these times, we have two options. We can either go with radical obedience or we can go with comfortable disobedience. Now, I'm not saying that it's always wrong and, and that we should, it's always wrong to remain and, and that we should always be a people who have no home and that we should just, you know, go around everywhere and, and move at the drop of a hat. That's not what I'm saying at all. I don't know what your situation is or what you are called to, and I'm not speaking to any particular situation even here. But I'm saying, though, that there are times when obedience means stretching further than we can imagine. And that's in Scripture. And when obedience means stretching further than we can imagine, we can't throw up the excuse Never done this before. Jesus had never died before either. But that didn't stop him. We must be willing to obey fully. And that that means many times giving up the things that you've hoped for and dreamed on your own because there's something greater out there that you may not even be able to understand at the time. Radical obedience sometimes looks like idiocy to the world. It looks crazy. The fact that the apostles went out and taught what they did and they lived the way they did, that was, that was not normal even for that time. But they were obedient nonetheless. How could Jesus give up his life when there were so many more people to teach? When there were so many more people that needed healing? When there was a kingdom to be established? How can a dead man establish a kingdom? That had never happened before. But he trusted himself, as Peter said, to the one who judges righteously. And the results shook heaven and earth. Well, I will say, just because you're obedient and you're obedient at when, when the Lord calls for it in a radical way, it may not shake heaven and earth. In fact, it won't. But you will grow in the grace of Christ. And you'll be more conformed to His image. But I'm not Jesus, you say. 
No. But taking up the cross means following in His steps even when His steps are hard. Because the end result will be greater glory to God than you can imagine. Which leads us to the last thing we can learn in times of God's frowning providence and that is that God will vindicate His people. He will bring justice to His people. Still in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14, For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and will turn away your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. The Lord here gave His extended promise to the people of Judah. I will come. I will deliver you in time. Seventy years to be exact. But in the meantime, go seek the peace of that city. Again, makes no sense apart from trust in God's Word. Obedience to God is not a tit-for-tat thing. I obey God and He does something for me in return. He's given us more than we can imagine already. And if He never gave us anything else, it would still be more than we could ever hope to repay in a trillion years working 24 hours a day every day. Thankfully, obedience, our obedience is not a one-to-one ratio with His gifts unto us. I cannot promise you what the results will be of obeying God despite trial and discouragement and temptation. For Jeremiah, I can tell you what it was. It was a life of disappointment. It was a life of prophesying and people not listening. You say, that's not exactly what I was hoping to hear. Don't worry, it's not what Jeremiah wanted to hear either. For Judah, obedience meant going to a land that they didn't know and being under the authority of a king who was not like them, who was a pagan. For a while, until the Lord used some of His servants, the Lord Himself changed that pagan heart. For Daniel... Obedience meant remaining in Babylon even when his people went back. For Joseph, it meant remaining in Egypt despite the fact that he was reunited with his family. For Jesus, obedience meant death. But, and here's what I'm saying in this last part when I say that God will vindicate his people. Death and exile is not the end. 
Never is death and exile the end. You read the book. It doesn't stop there. And don't you think that just because you are in the midst of a time of trial and discouragement, that that is where it will end. That's where it's going to stop. You see, believing in the sovereignty of God doesn't just mean I trust that God is in control of everything right now. Believing in the sovereignty of God means that I know He is in control of what's happening now and I know that He is working out His greater glory in the future. Trusting Him to do what He has said He will do. That's what Judah had to do. When they went into captivity, they had to believe most of the men, most of the men who were alive when they went into captivity would not see the return. They didn't have hope of that. Even some of the young ones who went would not see the return. It would be the generation who was born in Babylon who would see the Word of God brought to fruition. The prophets, the patriarchs, and the Lord of glory Himself knew that death and exile is not the end. In this passage, again, we read of how God would restore Judah in time. And that obedience in the meantime would make the restoration easier in the future. And that is the key. The people were to work towards obedience. They, they were to obey the Lord and they were to well, just do several things. And, and we can look at them here in verses 10 through 14. And we're not going to read the verses again, but just mark what the people were called to remember. First of all, they were called to remember God will restore you. Secondly, they were called to remember that His purposes we're working towards a glorious future. Verse 10. We all have heard verse 10. It's a wonderful verse. For I know the thoughts that I have towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a hope and a future. That's not just a great greeting card verse. Which it is. It's not just a verse that you put on a poster with a beautiful sunset. Nothing wrong with that either. But it's a verse to say God's plan is working towards His glory in the future. They're also told that they should pray for that future. Verse 12. They shall, then shall ye call upon Me, and ye shall pray unto Me, and I will hearken unto you. And lastly, they were told that they should seek after Him. These were the things they were called to remember. They were, Jeremiah said, keep these things in mind. So does this mean then that everything you give up, everything you yield to God, that, that you forego in order to obey Him, that, that you are going to gain it back in short order? And the answer is no. It doesn't mean that. Does it mean that you will always receive vindication here in this life? That people will always eventually see that you were right? 
No, it doesn't always mean that. But I can assure you that on the last day, for those that love the Lord and were obedient to Him in their lives, that He will welcome you into His presence as the child of His glory who brought glory to Him through your obedience despite the trials that opposed you. And as a faithful servant, He will beckon you to join Himself, His Father, and all the saints in eternity. Don't lose that as your hope. Your final and glorious hope. I want to close now by reading a poem by a man named Hans Brorschen. Probably didn't pronounce his name correctly. It's all right. It's called Behold a Host Arrayed in White. From the book of Revelation. Behold a host arrayed in white, like thousand snow-clad mountains bright. With palms they stand. Who is this band before the throne of light? Lo, these are they of glorious fame, who from the great affliction came. And in the flood of Jesus' blood are cleansed from guilt and blame. Now gathered in the holy place, their voices they in worship raise, their anthems swell where God doth dwell mid angel songs of praise. Despised and scorned, they sojourned here, but now how glorious they appear. Those martyrs stand a priestly band, God's throne forever near. So oft in troubled days gone by, in anguish they would weep and sigh. At home above, the God of love, for aye their tears shall dry. They now enjoy their Sabbath rest, the paschal banquet of the blessed, the Lamb, their Lord, at festal board himself as host and guest. Then hail, ye mighty legions, yea, all hail, now safe and blessed for aye, and praise the Lord who with His word sustained you on the way. Ye did the joys of earth disdain. Ye toiled and sowed in tears and pain. Farewell, now bring your sheaves and sing salvation's glad refrain. Swing high your palms, lift up your song. Yea, make it myriad voices strong. Eternally shall praise to thee God and the Lamb belong. Whether or not God honors you in this life, remember what awaits you when we are gathered together with a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the numberless multitude on high. Let's pray. Our Father, at times our hearts absolutely ache to experience this. It's not that we want to die early. It's not that we don't believe your promises of what you said you will do. But we long to be gathered with you and with our fellow saints in the past who now behold us as a great cloud of witnesses. We long to praise you in eternal glory and worship You with voices loud and strong. 
We pray that we would not despise the time that You have given us here to grow in Your grace and in obedience. I pray that You would establish us in the most holy faith and that You would bring us into Your eternal presence in the time that You see fit. In Jesus' name, Amen.